I'm going to sit down too. Is that all right with you? I've had what the late Queen Elizabeth referred to recently as mobility issues. It must be slightly an age thing. And so just for today, I'm going to sit and I can look you more in the eye that way, which is nice. It has been about, um, I think the first time I came to this church would have been 1986. I think it had just been converted from a roller rink, a roller skating rink. And uh, I came then and then number of years back to the church and uh, to the conferences that you used to hold here, wonderful events that touch so many around Britain and Europe and even the world, and have seen all the changes. And what is wonderful is that we have a group of people here now who still love the Lord, are totally consistent in their hunger for the Word of God. Seasons come and seasons go, but there are people God looks for who know how to be a rock in a hard place, who know how to stand and having done all to stand. And I think that kind of describes you. Would you agree? Yes. And for those of you who are new here today, you haven't been before, or maybe you've just come for a few weeks now, welcome. Yes. You are welcome here. Welsh people are very welcoming. I know that because my wife is Welsh <laughs> from around this area, Pontypool. And uh, my mother-in-law was Welsh. She's passed on and gone to be with the Lord, a wonderful saint of God, beautiful singing voice, as you would expect but also a real woman of God. So it's lovely to be here with you today. Um, on the day of the late Queen's funeral, my social media feeds all featured one short statement. It said, Today much of the world paid homage to a Christian woman of high integrity, winsome charm, measured wisdom, humble attitude, and passionate service. Perhaps the world is looking for more like her. And of all the verses of Scripture that would describe the character of Queen Elizabeth II, I think this one is surely the most apposite. It's taken from Colossians 3. Work willingly at whatever you do, as though working for the Lord rather than for people. The Lyft Company was one of the pioneers of the person-to-person taxi model that we use in many parts of the world now. A few years ago, it announced the launch of an entirely new travel service that it said would revolutionize the way people travel across cities. Not only would people be able to call a cab in a certain place to go to a certain other place, but Lyft would send larger vehicles across cities to stop at set points at set times of day and take people to set destinations. This was very exciting. They were all excited about it, heavily marketing it in the United States and elsewhere, until someone finally, in the brain's trust of the Link Company, realized that this exciting new innovation wasn't as new as people first thought. What Link was actually marketing was, in fact, something people already called a bus. (laughs) Sometimes, new ideas are not as new as we think they are. Sometimes, In new ideas, we find echoes of much older ideas. A good example of that is what some people now are calling the metaverse. We've been researching this a lot in the last few months in our organization and doing a lot of media commentary because it's such a big thing for people who are into technology. But it will affect other people later on. 
Most recently, it's been prominently championed by a man called Mark Zuckerberg, who is the founder of Facebook, who changed the name of his company to Meta as if to suggest that he had come up with the concept and the name of Metaverse. He didn't because they both existed in a science fiction novel way back in the mid-1990s. The technology didn't exist back then to make this a reality, but the dream was there. People thought about Metaverse as a new form of internet. A new layer on top of our internet was much more immersive, much more interactive, where you could have almost real experiences in an unreal space. They looked at it as something that unifies the entire digital world, everything from games, finance, entertainment, business, virtual travel, virtual meetings like Zoom, all under one umbrella, 24-7. Today, people dream of using this thing called the metaverse to build virtual cities, cities on the internet, if you will, and with that, virtual lives, lives complete with privately owned virtual real estate, spaces where people can construct new life experiences, again, not in the real world, but in the online world. Online businesses and workspaces, in-world marketing with virtual buildings showing virtual billboards, new economies built uh, on what are called cyber currencies. You've probably heard of Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of the others. The cryptocurrencies that exist only in the digital world. There's no hard currency, no cash, just ones and zeros of computer code. But we're seeing right now how flaky and unreliable they can be. People look at the metaverse now for new forms of ownership. They look for new forms of relationship, even erotic relationships, through what we call haptic technology. If you've ever put on a pair of goggles for a virtual reality game or a glove to play a game, that's haptic. It's fooling your senses, your sense of sight and touch. Fully haptic means it doesn't just fool your sight, sound and hearing, but also your smell and taste as well. It's not here yet, but it's coming. So people look to that to help them have new relationships with other people online, including erotic relationships. Now, that all sounds very new and very revolutionary, but not everything in this metaverse is as new as people think. In fact, we find precursors to the ideas that drive the metaverse in ancient literature, even, it might surprise you to know, in the Bible. Now, the metaverse is not mentioned in the Bible. The technology didn't exist in Bible times. But the ideas behind this so-called internet revolution are certainly recognized in the Bible, particularly by one individual who would have felt right at home in today's environment. His name was Solomon, son of King David. He lived for, or reigned from 970 BC for 60 years. He was well-educated. We know he was highly accomplished as the king of the United Kingdom of Israel, the last king, in fact, of that United Kingdom before it split into two parts. His rule covered a period that was the apex of Israel's wealth and status in the ancient world. He was also the author of a most unusual and often unread book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes. It's called other things in other languages, but the word Ecclesiastes in English comes to us from a Greek word in the New Testament called Ecclesia, which simply means an assembly of people, like us today. We are an Ecclesia. 
In fact, in the New Testament, in the English Bible, Ecclesia was almost always translated as church. And the name of the book suggests a scenario that was quite common in the time of Solomon if you read books at that time, scrolls as they were. The scenario was a, a statesman, a person of great repute, standing before a group of younger people to share with them his wisdom or her wisdom. This is the picture that's painted in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the core question in this book, if you've ever read it, is this. What is life all about and how can I lead a meaningful life? Solomon's often called by Jewish scholars the father of Jewish philosophy because he asked these very philosophical questions. And Solomon's quest for meaning took him in an experiment through many different types of work, through many different sectors of work. And this is where he becomes very relevant to you and I today in this so-called post-pandemic world. At different times, Solomon was an urban developer who built cities, he was an architect. That was my background once, a long time ago. He was an engineer. He was into horticulture and architect, uh, agriculture. He was an expert in breeding animals, especially horses. Archaeologists say that he may have had as many as 450 horses, which was a lot in the ancient world. He was an aesthete, an artist. He wrote songs and psalms. Two of our psalms are written by Solomon, Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. He also built orchestras to play in the temples he designed, or the temple he designed and the palaces he built. On top of all that, in his spare time, Solomon was an international trader who traded in rare metals with other countries and rare animals like apes and peacocks brought into the Middle East for the first time by Solomon. And Solomon's search for meaning in life took him on this journey through many different professions at a very high level. And Solomon's question is still one that we're asking today. How can I find meaning not only in my life, but in my work? And how can I do meaningful work? Do you know that British workers spend 84,000 hours of their lives on work activities? That's a lot of hours. Whether you do it in an office or at home, 84,000 hours in your lifetime. Work forms a very important part of who we are, our identity. If you don't believe me, try going to a party sometime and strike up a conversation with someone you've never met without making any reference to what you or they do for a living. It's a very important thing, work. And questions about meaningful work have become more important post-COVID. Post-pandemic, we're seeing some very fundamental changes in the way people Look at work. Do you know in the UK today, as well as other countries, we have what we're calling the Great Resignation. You might have heard of this. Studies show that in the developed world, people are now moving jobs, not because they have to, but because they've totally changed their priorities during lockdown. And so we have the rise in home working today. We have the rise in people becoming freelancers and starting their own businesses. We have changes in the way people travel to work. Some people don't want to catch a train for two hours to sit in an office and work to someone else's timetable. Even offices are changing now to become more attractive to people in some places. We also see evidence of this shift in our attitudes in what we call the great slowdown. Some people call it quiet 
quitting. <laughs> Studies suggest that growing numbers of people are deliberately engaging in the minimum amount of work needed to keep their jobs. I hope that doesn't describe any of us. They're not fully applying themselves. They're not reaching their potential. They're just doing what they have to do to keep the job. Work is so important, ladies and gentlemen. We look to our work to provide what we call a meta-narrative, a big-picture story of who we are. We look for an overriding story that makes sense of our lives and adds value to our lives, and work is an important part of that. That's why there's so much interest in things like this metaverse thing. We are on a quest for meaning. Some people are trying to find on the internet, in the cybersphere, what they can't find in the real world. A big picture story that will make sense of who they are. Solomon would have felt right at home in today's post-COVID world. So what were Solomon's conclusions? After decades of trying out different forms of work to try and meaning, what, what conclusions did he arrive at? Well, he made two observations. And again, these are very clear if you read the book of Ecclesiastes. Two key statements that he repeats over and over again in the book. The first one says this, very famous, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Emptiness, emptiness, all is emptiness. Futility, all is futile. In Ecclesiastes 1.14, Solomon says, I have seen all the types of work that are done under the sun, and behold, Everything is empty or vain. It's just a striving after wind. Solomon's using what we call a superlative. We speak of the best of the best. That's a superlative. Or the worst of the worst. That's a superlative. So Solomon's saying life is as empty as it's possible for life to be. That's encouraging, isn't it? Sort of guy you'd invite to your party, isn't he? The second conclusion is just as important. He says, there's nothing new under the sun or there's nothing new under heaven. What he says in Ecclesiastes 1 verses 4 to 9 is that life comes in cycles and seasons. What's been done before will be done again. There's no sense to any of it. It's just pointless, he says. The best you can do is probably just enjoy God's gifts in the moment, then you die. Again, very encouraging. But Solomon has a problem because his entire view of the world is built on the horizontal axis. His only reference points in all of his searching are human activities, human learning, human relationships. He has nothing to offer on the vertical plane, the spiritual plane. It's no accident that the book of Ecclesiastes is the only book of the Bible where there's no mention of God, the Redeemer, or God who works for and through his people. It's a very good thing, don't you think, that Solomon is not the center of the Bible story. Oh, he was multi-talented. He was very well educated, very knowledgeable. But there was one person in the Bible much wiser than he. In Matthew 12, verse 42, Jesus told the people, even foreign rulers like the Queen of Sheba have marveled at Solomon's achievements. But now... Something greater than Solomon is here. What's the something greater? It's the person of Jesus, yes, but it's the kingdom come to earth through Jesus. The central figure of the Bible is Jesus. 
is crucifixion and resurrection are its main events. And that's the key to the whole question of meaning in the Bible. Just consider for a moment the design of a cross. It has both a horizontal and a vertical axis. On the cross, Jesus' body was bridging the horizontal, human, and the vertical, spiritual planes. His hands are fixed to the horizontal. His feet are gruesomely nailed to the vertical. And he is symbolically bringing together heaven and earth. The supernatural, the natural, the spiritual, and the material. I suggest to you Jesus lived a a fuller life than any other human being on the horizontal level. He was more involved in people things than anyone else in history. Which is why he goes on inspiring people who change societies through his example. He was very much involved on the human level, but he wasn't fixated on the horizontal. He was always tuned into the vertical, the spiritual. He spent a lot of time, often entire nights, in prayer. Even his miracles, ladies and gentlemen, were intended to be seen as signs of the kingdom here on earth. Jesus took our very limited horizontal view of the world and added the tangible presence of the vertical, an invasion of God's kingdom on earth. Jesus' life and death forever altered the question of life's meaning. Solomon's conclusion was there's nothing new under the sun, S-U-N. But when you know Jesus, I mean really know Jesus, you know that there's always something new under the sun, S-O-N. And for a Christian, the question Solomon asked, how can I find meaning in my work? The honest answer is two words. You can't. Work on its own can't provide that big picture story that you're looking for that requires a vertical perspective, a spiritual element. But as Christians, you can know you're doing meaningful life work. If Christ is already the center of your life, if you'll put certain things in place, you can know when you go to work on Monday, this means something. If you want that sort of knowledge that you're doing, meaningful work, the first thing you need to do is understand where work came from. In the Christian worldview presented in the Bible, work is a gift from God. It was given to us just after we were created. Before the fall came work. The great British theologian John Stott once wrote that it's the creation, not the fall, that makes us workers. Work is part of our human nature. We're compulsive workers. We're always looking for ways to be creative and productive. That's why long-term unemployment is so damaging to people psychologically and physically. And by the way, if you're a believer in Jesus and you're, quote, unemployed today, you're not really, you're in transition. Because God has something else for you to do. And that's the good news of the New Testament. We are told that not only are we workers because God is a worker, Dorothy Sayers, the great novelist of the 20th century, said work is not Primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. But here's the other good news. In the New Testament, we can have the privilege of joining God in his work. We're called co-workers with Christ in the New Testament. God, it seems, has deliberately arranged life on earth so that he needs our cooperation 
to do what he intends to do. It's no good, by the way, Christian, praying, oh Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you're not prepared to also pray, Lord, use me. Because that's the way God works. We need to know where work comes from if we're to do meaningful work. Second thing we need to do, if we're to know we're doing meaningful work, which takes up so much time in our lives, we need to acknowledge that Christ is the head of all things. He's the boss. In Ephesians 1.22, the Bible says, God has put all things under Christ's authority, or he has made him head over all things, another version says. And he's given him as head over all things to the church. Notice, Christian, he's not just the head of Christianity. And he's not just the head of religion. Our secular world today wants to put us all in a little box and say, well, you got your religion, you go off and play with that over there. Jesus isn't concerned about anything else. No, the Bible says he's the head of business, he's the head of education, he's the head of media, he's the head of law, he's the head of politics, he's the head of technology, he's the head of science, he's the head of almost any sphere of activity you care to name. As far as God is concerned, Christ has been made the head of these things and given as head over all things to the church. What does that mean? It means it's our responsibility and our privilege to express the headship of Christ in our work, in all the spheres we're involved. If you're in education, Christ is the head of education. Now, that doesn't mean we go around with our chest puffed out looking down at everybody and saying, we are the church, who are you? No, because the Bible says that Christ came to serve, not to be served. So we express the headship of Christ by humbly, through servanthood, expressing his will in our work. So what does God want most from me in my work? He wants me to express the headship of Christ. That means, in a very practical way, asking certain questions. Let's say, as an example, you're someone working in a business. Maybe you're not the boss, but you're working in a business, a shop or anything, factory. The question you will ask yourself is, what would my business look like if Jesus was the head of it? Now, he may not be my boss in the earthly sense, but what would my work look like if he was the boss? What ethics would guide my decisions? What standards and practices would I apply? If you are a boss, what standards would you use to promote equality? of worth and opportunity among workers of different races? How would you address the pay gap that does exist between men and women? How would you show respect to the needs of your customers and your partners and your team members? How would your business work within the law? Not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law too. As Christians, whether you're the boss or not, we are looking for ways to express what Jesus showed us about who God is in as many creative ways as we can. See, God reveals himself in what we call a fractal way. Has anybody here, when you were younger, did you study computer science or biology even? Anybody? Yeah, a couple of people. If you did, you probably know what fractal forms are. They're all the way through nature. Fractal forms are cellular forms that have both sameness and diversity. So every snowflake is still a snowflake, but they all look different at a cellular level. They all have a different pattern, but they're still snowflakes. It's sameness and diversity in one design. And that runs all the way through nature. And you know, God has revealed himself in fractal ways. 
He highlights different parts of who he is to different people in different ways. For some of you, when you start talking about the Lord, you'll talk most about God's creativity. You can't help it. It's just part of who you are. You'll talk about God's generosity, perhaps. That's the thing that flicks your switch. When you hear a preacher talk about giving and the, and the generosity of God, not just in money, but in other ways, that's me. Some people are turned on by the justice side of this wonderful, complex, beyond our understanding person we call God. Some people, it's the mercy of God for the oppressed, the downtrodden. God expects us to think fractally too, to take the revelation we have and express it in as many different ways as we can. That part's up to you, not God. The revelation is up to God. The application is up to me. See, our meaning isn't found in the work itself. It's found in who we ultimately work for and who we ultimately work with. Are you still with me today? If you want to know you're doing meaningful work, this one's very important. You need to take a redemptive outlook. In Jeremiah 29.7, a very famous verse of the Bible, and I love it very much because of the work we do, it says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you as exiles and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. God is saying, by the way, to Jews living in Babylon, not exactly a friendly city to them, he's saying to them, it's in your best interest to seek the welfare of the city into which I've sent you. It's in your best interests to seek its economic welfare, its psychological welfare, yes, its spiritual welfare. Years ago, the first time I ever went to Northern Ireland was back around the first time I came here. And I stayed with a senior police officer in what was then called the Royal Ulster Constabulary. Remember, this is the time when the troubles were still at their fiercest. Senior police officer was a target. It was really encouraging staying in Brian's house because before you went through the front door, he had to feel around the lintels to make sure there were no wires. It was bombs attached. And it was very exciting driving Brian's car because before you got in in the morning, he would take a pole with a mirror on it and check underneath thoroughly to make sure, again, there were no explosives attached. And I said to him day, one day, Brian, why do you live like this? You've got a wife and two beautiful children and they don't know if you're coming home in a car or a coffin tonight. Why don't you come to Australia? We'll take you. Why don't you go to Canada? They, you're very highly qualified. He looked at me in what I've since come to think of as a very Irish intense way. And he said this, Mal, I would leave tomorrow except for one thing. This is where God has called me to be. And I take great pleasure in doing his work. Amen. Now think, as you say amen, think about that. He's not saying, I love the church in my city. He's not saying I love the spiritual experience of being in a church in my city. That's not what he's saying. I find pleasure in doing his work in my city. And for a Christian, 
redeeming parts of the city's story is part of our calling. Do you know all work for a Christian is meant to have some public service in it? You may not be working for a charity. You may be working making shoes. But there's still, in your heart, should be a desire to take it beyond the corporate front door and do some good. There was a German-British economist, E.F. Schumacher, who once said one of the purposes of work is to, quote, liberate us from our inborn egocentricity. In other words, work should divert our attention away from ourselves to something bigger than our own ego. Don't go to work tomorrow thinking, I'm just here to get a paycheck and put the tithe in on Sunday and have a holiday at the end of the year. That's a waste of your life. God didn't call you for that. Jesus didn't die so you could be more bored than you were before. He wants you to discover what in your city needs to be rediscovered. How can I take something that once happened... What was, what was Newport known for once upon a time? Well, it was known for this, maybe it did that, in this industry. this. One. But what about your business? What could your business do or your factory or wherever you were, your family, if you're raising a family, do that could change the community around you? That's what I'm saying. My mother just passed away this year and I don't have time to tell you all about her. It would take me hours and hours and hours. She was a saint of a woman. She raised seven children with my dad in a working class home and still managed to take in other children as foster children in a very small house, including one sight and mentally challenged young boy who couldn't even communicate with words. She looked after him for 10 years. She didn't say much with her mouth. She was a very quiet, unassuming woman. But with her actions, she spoke volumes. And she looked without even putting it in these terms. She looked at the need out there and said, I want my, my work, which was raising a family, I want my work to have an effect beyond my own ego and beyond my own interests. That is the calling of a Christian. And what a great calling it is to get out of bed in the morning. Instead of just saying, I'm going to work to punch the clock and do what the boss says, I'm going to work this morning to try if God will help me to find even little ways to redeem something. To bring back something that's been lost of the kingdom of God to these people. And I'll finish with this one. And I know everybody likes the word finally, so there it is. Finally. When Paul wrote it, he went on for three more chapters. I promise not to do that today. If you want to know that you're doing meaningful work, remember Christ is the core to our meaning. We find who we are in Christ, not in the work. But if we do that, if we have that foundation, we can know that we are doing meaningful work by pursuing innovation. And listen, I I just believe, I've spoken on this before here, but I'm going to say it again because church, the world needs innovation now more than it's ever done before. Do you know what the difference between innovation and creativity is? Up here we see creativity all around us, screens, sound systems, great music and worship. Thank you to the worship team, by the way. Great creativity, but innovation is what you're sitting on. Creativity applied to solve a practical problem. Innovation is creativity with work clothes on. That's what it is. Jesus was a great innovator. People think of Jesus in the church as a great healer and that sort of... Well, he was. But if you were blind Bartimaeus sitting at the side of the road, you couldn't get a job. You couldn't because you didn't have a job raise a family. 
You couldn't have any network of friends. There was no such support network in those times for sight-challenged people. And yet with one act of healing, Jesus solves all those practical problems. It wasn't just a spiritual or even physical healing act. It was an act of innovation, solving problems. And throughout the centuries, men and women have stood against racial oppression, against social oppression, against crooked corporate thinking where it exists. They've stood against poverty and lack because Jesus inspires them to address those problems. Christians are not just playing worship songs. They're solving problems, ladies and gentlemen. And Jesus' death was the ultimate innovation because he solved our ultimate problem, the problem of human sin. Today, the world does need problem solvers in society as much as or more than it needs preachers. It needs preachers, but I think it needs problem solvers perhaps more. We did react in Britain with a certain degree of shock, I suppose, but certainly with deep sorrow to the news of Queen Elizabeth's passing. This remarkable woman was our longest-serving monarch, but also the head of state in countries like my homeland, Australia. I'm a citizen in both. In Canada, in New Zealand, in other nations around the world, she was a stateswoman trusted and admired globally. And in the many tributes you would have heard paid to her during that time, there were many, many, many mentions of her personal Christian faith. As years went by, the Queen grew more and more bold in declaring her faith, even when her nation was becoming more and more secular. This quote is from one of her Christmas messages, and it's very clear. Quote, for me, the life of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas, is an inspiration and an anchor in my life. A role model of reconciliation and forgiveness. He stretched out his hands in love, acceptance and healing. Christ's example has taught me to seek to respect and value all people of whatever faith or none. The Queen didn't start out as a woman of 96. She was 25 when she began to reign. But even then, she had a profound Christian faith. Today, she's celebrated by leaders around the world. Why? Because she was a great preacher? No. Because she was an awesome worship leader? No, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not why she's celebrated. She was a woman who was not even born to be queen. But she stepped up. She devoted her life to service, driven by her faith. Here was a meaningful life, ladies and gentlemen, because she worked as unto the Lord and not unto men. The Queen found innovative ways to solve international problems. She took a redemptive attitude wherever she could, working for the best in her nation. Not just the people who liked her, but anybody. She embraced even the toughest parts of her job, knowing that work is a gift from God. And the question I have for you and I this morning is what might we accomplish in the years ahead if we start with those commitments today? Father, we thank you today for your word. We humble ourselves again and are still before the presence of the Lord. 
We acknowledge once more that we are but creatures of dust, fashioned by your great hand for great and noble purposes, who fell from that position of grace by our stubborn pride. And yet you didn't leave us in that position. You sent your son, born of a woman, Jesus Christ, not only to show us the kingdom and what it looked like, but to create a portal so we could go through into the kingdom through his death and resurrection. I pray for every Christian brother and sister who, like me, is always evaluating our work and we're thinking, is what I'm doing really counting? I pray, Lord God, that you will help, help us to see that our meaning comes from Christ, but because he's the meaning of our life, we can do meaningful work. It doesn't have to be a drudge. It doesn't have to be boring. We can do things that work together with you in your purposes. Help us, Lord, to be more innovative, to solve problems. Even small ones count. Help us, Lord. Help us to remember who is the head of all things whose name is higher than every other name. And he is vitally interested in the work we do, not just what we do on Sunday. Most of us are not called to be pastors. We thank God for the dear pastors we have that labor in prayer and the word every week, day in, day out. But most of us are not called to that. The church equips us for the work of our ministry so that we will go out and serve in the marketplace or business or whatever it is we do. Help us to recognize that Christ is the head of it and to express the revelation we have of God in creative ways. For anyone here, Lord, that doesn't know you, really know you, who has never said the most powerful word in any language, the word yes, to the most extreme, Extraordinary friend, master, Lord, guide, teacher that they will ever know. Jesus Christ. That before this service ends in their hearts, they will deliberately, by an act of will, not emotion, say, yes, Jesus. I don't understand it all. I may not even be religious, but I want you in my life. I want to give you my life. Take my past and my present and give me the future I was born to have because I don't want to die before I know why I was born. I pray that this morning people will say yes to you, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' great name, Father. Amen.